This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We started the week on Victoria Day Monday talking about the abrupt and powerful storm that tore through southern Ontario and Quebec, later confirmed to be a tornado in the Durham region township of Uxbridge. Hundreds of thousands of hydro customers in southern Ontario lost electricity. Some are still waiting to have their power turned back on. While filling in for Libby on Holiday Monday, I was joined by an abbreviated Zoomer squad to talk about the emergency nature of the storm and the ripple effect for older people. Anthony Quinn is CARP's chief community officer. He was with us, along with our regular contributor, David Kravit, chief membership officer at CARP, as well as a vice president here at Zoomer Media. I think older people are you know, generically more vulnerable in all these situations, whether it's this kind of storm or, um, you know, blizzards and ice storms in the winter. And I think um, two things occurred to me while I was watching it unfold. One, I was glad for the uh, emergency um, notifications ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it gives you an opportunity to plan a little bit. And I, I think also the fact that the storm mainly hit um relatively built up areas increases the likelihood of people having a neighbor or a friend or a loved one uh, either nearby or who can get over there quickly um you know after the um after the storm has passed so i think that in many cases the the people who are most vulnerable do have people nearby but it does show you that you need to uh have uh, an emergency plan available, particularly if it's an elderly parent. Uh, if, if you've got a parent who is uh, elderly or disabled, there should be permanently in place a plan. Um, you know, who's going to do what? Who's, it's another. It's really an extension of caregiving. Who's going to do what? Who's going to take in food? Who's going to go uh, pick them up? Maybe take them out of the residence temporarily. Um, all those plans need to be in place, and this uh, storm reminds us of that need. Anthony, what would you like to add to that in terms of how this type of weather event affects older people and how we move forward? Yeah, the federal government really has made an effort to alert all of us to our own personal responsibilities and self-reliance, and they're encouraging everyone to have 72 hours of uh, food and water and batteries and flashlights and all the things that we would need to fend for ourselves until emergency responders can come to us. So that 72 hours is the window that uh, it, it could take someone to come if we're in need during an emergency. So that uh, I would encourage everyone to visit the government website, getprepared.ca. And oh, all of the lists are there mm-hmm. on what we have to do for ourselves. What kinds of things are on that list, Anthony, now that you've looked at it? Yeah, it's it's food and water, uh, mm-hmm. canned food, uh, uh, a can opener, uh, water for 72 hours in, in smaller bottles. The 
uh, batteries, uh, flashlights, uh, and they also say having a, a local network, as David was talking about, a local network of connections that can look in on you as well. So uh, having that all set up in the event of emergency, not uh, at the time of emergency. And it goes without saying, I mean, you mentioned, David, about having a sort of a caregiver rundown when there are events like this. But checking in on older neighbors and family, always a good idea. If you've been in a neighborhood for a long time and you know the residents, you you want to do a little bit of a check afterwards. I think you do. And I think that um, part of the problem here, of course, was that the storm did a lot of physical damage should people, nine people, I believe, were killed trees down. Um, I don't, didn't hear many, you know, older people, you know, out for a stroll during the storm, obviously. Mm-hmm. But when there's this kind of physical damage, uh, it becomes even more important, uh, you know, for people to look in and, and make sure everything's okay and get uh, even temporary help so that the person isn't doesn't remain isolated. Um, that to me is the priority, and it's worthwhile, especially when we head into the season where you have summer brownouts or blackouts, to go over that with them, uh, walk through the facility, be it a home, be it a high rise, whatever it is, and say, okay, where's the uh, where's the candles? Where's the battery? Is there a flashlight that's uh, whose batteries are all charged up. You don't want to be scrambling to do all this uh, when it happens. You want to have it ready ahead of time. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Anthony Quinn, Chief Community Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. When Libby was joined by our Recovering Politicians panel on Tuesday... We wondered if there will be any issues which might move the state of public opinion, which more or less seems to have held the same since the beginning of the election campaign. According to the polls, Doug Ford's PCs will likely be reelected and likely with another majority, while the Stephen Del Duca liberals appear headed for the opposition benches. Policy announcements have been regular events throughout this election campaign, but there have also been accusations about individual candidates, which have resulted in some candidates being let go and others supported by the various leaders. Last week, there was a column in the Toronto Sun accusing the NDP candidate for re-election in the riding of St. Paul's of anti-Semitism. Libby ran this story by Lisa Raitt, a former federal deputy conservative leader, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal finance minister, and Howard Hampton, the former leader of the Ontario NDP. This is not new news. The issue of Palestine is a very controversial one. And let me give you an example. Former President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, wrote a book about how Palestinians uh, were not second, perhaps not even third-rate citizens in Israel. And he was labeled anti-Semitic uh, for that book. Um, we've had uh, people in all parties who take a position in terms of Palestine uh, then being labeled as anti-Semitic. Well, I, just a I, minute, I, Howard. This We're yeah. talking about anti-Semitism here, and there is an accepted definition. I understand uh, that. Yeah. Pardon? I, under, I understand that, but we just saw the same thing, for example, in the Green Party, where you had uh, some 
uh, uh, Green Party MPs take a position on uh, Palestine, uh, and then other people in the Green Party said, well, that's anti-Semitic. Are you saying that this is just an unfair accusation? No, I'm, I'm saying you have to treat these accusations uh, very carefully and very thoughtfully, especially in the last 10 days of an election. Charles, uh, the Liberals, they sent out a release on this. Uh, what do you make of this? I find the issue of anti-Semitism and the definition thereof, I know the Liberals adopted it and the NDP are still trying to find what it may mean or not mean as a result of some of the other geopolitics in the area. But it is disturbing trends, not in all parties, frankly. Um, and then, of course, there's white supremacist issues um, in, in parties as well, which creates a lot of, of concern. Um, these are disturbing trends. And, uh, you know, I, I deal with all groups. We all want to get along. We all, they all, people come to Canada for the purposes of trying to avoid some of uh, the fights back in the home country, so to speak. But this is a much broader issue, much bigger issue that has been uh, addressing world events for a long time. And um, I'm concerned that this is now coming to light yet again to the point that this has been already discussed in the past and that the NDP still haven't been able to resolve their issues internally because they're obviously opposing views. Uh, Lisa Wright, I mean, uh, we've seen an explosion in anti-Semitism just in the last couple of years. Uh, we see this ongoing thing. I mean, the to me, the difference, there's anti-Semitism on the right, but it's usually a lot more overt. And uh, it's, uh, you know, in the, on the left, there are more people who are saying that uh, really it's, it's not that, it's something else. Well, I'm going to, so for me, uh, it's, what's going to be important is how the leaders deal with it. So regardless about whether or not uh, an individual candidate holds views one way or the other, whatever their views are on any topic, it's what does the leader do about it? And that's the measure by which they will be judged. So it's going to be about what Andrea Horvath decides to do about it, one way or the other. She's going to make enemies and friends, no matter what her decision is. But it's going to give clarity to voters out there as to where, uh, how a leader handles these kinds of difficult situations. It's a difficult situation in the last two weeks of the campaign. It's gotcha politics, no question about it. And the last thing that I would say is it takes everybody off of a day of talking about policy issues, um, and I want to see more about policy. I don't think there's any undecideds out there, by the way. I, I think this this is now locked in in terms of how this is going to go, and the question is, can you get your people to the polls? Now, if it turns out in either of these, any of these cases, any of these cases that have been brought up, NDP, Liberal, Conservative, if the leader got it wrong and they are shown to have poor judgment, then that's going to really hurt them. It's going to reflect on the leader, and quite frankly, it should. You got to put a process in place. You got to make sure that you're fair about how you deal with it. And if you get the call wrong, you are held accountable for it. But that's what being a leader is. Lisa Raitt, former federal deputy conservative leader, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal finance minister, and Howard Hampton, former leader of the Ontario NDP Fightback's Recovering Politicians panel. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, do we need to be concerned about monkeypox? Expert opinion is coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. 
Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just when we thought we were putting the pandemic behind us, the threat of another virus is emerging. It's called monkeypox, which causes a horrible bumpy rash, often after initial symptoms, including fever. We learned of Toronto's first case last weekend, a man in his 40s who was recently in contact with someone who traveled to Montreal. Fight Back went to a panel of experts to find out more about monkeypox and whether we should be concerned. Dr. Colin Furness is an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. And epidemiologist Dr. Prabhat Jha is at the Dalat Lana School of Public Health. It looks like a couple of super spreader events in Europe, so just wrong place, wrong time, bad luck, um, that caused a lot of transmission. And then, of course, people go on their way and fly home. And that then sparks, obviously, um, multiple outbreaks in multiple countries. So it just really seems to have been a very unusual and unfortunate set of events. Okay. And Dr. Ja, how is it... Hello. Is how is it spread? I've I've seen all kinds of things. Uh, one of them says it's mostly sexual contact or it's skin. So how how is it spread? It seems to be mostly through skin skin contact, which uh, is uh, and could be sexual contact as well. I mean, they obviously go uh, together in uh, in intimate situations, and you get skin contact. But the assuring thing is, we know from previous evidence that it's not transmitted through the air, uh, or very limited evidence that it is. And I know WHO has criticized early for saying, okay, well, SARS-CoV-2 was not transmitted airborne and then turning around and saying it was. But this is a very different virus. We're not a respiratory virus. It's uh, um, It can uh, mostly be contacted through, uh, through skin. So, And the truth is that the world is looking for these kind of outbreaks in a way that it didn't before COVID. So in past times, it might have not even been detected. But as Dr. Furness said, it, the origin seems to be a couple of super spreader events in Europe. And uh, But because you're basically looking at people with a rash, then it also should be reasonably easy for people to identify that they are potentially exposed and isolate and therefore decrease cases. So I think we'll get this quickly under control. Dr. Furness, it's related to smallpox, right? So we presumably have some vaccines that will work? In fact, the oldest vaccine we have uh, is from smallpox, and that was developed in the 1700s. So uh, we're not using the same thing today as, as from, from from that long ago, but yes. And I, my understanding is that uh, the smallpox vaccine is about 85% effective against monkeypox, which is quite good. And people in their 50s and above, I think, have all been vaccinated for smallpox. So if you're older and you, you have that vaccination, um, you should consider yourself protected. My only concern is if this does continue to spread and I doubt it will but if it does and the virus starts to evolve then you know we might be we, we, we might sort of have a longer a longer 
play with this, but but I, I'm not expecting that to be the case. Now, I, th- I I read that the U.S. is releasing some stockpiles they have of smallpox vaccine. Dr. Ja, do you know the situation here? Do we actually have it? Is it actually still good as opposed to being expired? I think the, the vaccines, the smallpox vaccines, have been kept um protect particularly for this kind of contingency and here the approach wouldn't be mass vaccination that actually would be very unwise if anything what what might be used is what was done for smallpox was called ring vaccination i don't think we're even at that stage of thinking we need to resort i think it's right now it's health doc health uh, professionals need to keep an eye out for any kind of unusual rashes and get them reported, and if so, treat them like potential cases and isolate and report them, and then, you know, they get testing. And uh, hopefully with uh, the lessons from COVID, everyone will be more diligent about reporting the information quickly, and all the information will be gathered quickly. But I am quite quite sure that this won't be a major, uh, major event. Epidemiologist Dr. Prabhat Jha at the Dalalana School of Public Health and Dr. Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's that time of year again, the month of May, when we're reminded about bladder cancer. Who is most susceptible to this below-the-belt cancer? What is the main symptom, and how can you protect yourself against it or act quickly if you may have it? If you're a new listener to Zoomer Radio, I've been an advocate for Bladder Cancer Canada since 2015 in memory of my mom, Sandy, who died with bladder cancer 10 years ago. And I can't say enough good about this organization, Bladder Cancer Canada, made up mostly of incredible volunteers. Tony Kornakia is Chair VP of Bladder Cancer Canada and a bladder cancer survivor himself. Dr. Alex Zlata is the Director of Euro-Oncology at Mount Sinai Hospital, a professor in the Department of Urology Surgery at the University of Toronto, and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. They joined me on Monday to talk about bladder cancer awareness. And Dr. Zlata began our discussion with some good news on bladder cancer research. Nearly every year and every six months, something truly uh, outstanding comes uh, for patients. Um, you remember a couple of years ago, that was the event of what we call the immune checkpoint inhibitors that basically were redirecting our immune system to find the tumor cells and to kill them. And we've seen now and presented since, I would say, a couple of years, but mainly uh, this year at the ASCO and the AUA, um, a new class of treatments which are uh, called antibody-based uh, targeted. And it's an antibody drug conjugates, and basically those drugs target specific targets and antigens that um, are present on tumor cells. And the most known now is called EV, or it's N4-tumab-vedatin, but for most physicians and patients, it's EV. And that targets a uh, 
Nectin form, that's a sweet name of the target on the bladder cancer cells, and has been shown that even in patients who failed, so to speak, at one point the chemotherapy didn't respond even to the immunotherapy. It can salvage and prolong the survival of many patients. And there's another um, target which is also shared with breast, which is TROP2, and the drug has a uh, even more complex name. It's a Sazutuzumab govitecan. I'll spare you the names. But these new drugs are um, effective even after several lines of treatment and are, are moved early on. And so the bottom line is that uh, research moves very, very fast and uh, with great advances. Oh, this is such fantastic news. Thank you, Dr. Zlot. I wanted to start out on a positive note because... So many people in recent decades, you know, things are changing, but in recent decades, people have lost their lives to bladder cancer um, and have not always survived. Uh, Tony, uh, it's nice to chat with you for the first time. Uh, you have quite a story. Uh, please, if you would share it with us. Uh, yes. Um, so I, I've got to say I benefited from the research that Dr. Zolata and his colleagues have done uh, I was first diagnosed uh, in early 2014 um, uh, and had surgery to scrape out my bladder, uh, and it had uh, had come back later in that year. So I had um, uh, four surgeries in total and a number of failed uh, sort of uh, treatments, uh, BCG being one of them that, that didn't work for me. Uh, and over those first two years, my cancer had actually spread to my lymph node system. Um, and the prognosis wasn't very good by the end of, that would have been December or late 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, um, you know, took a look at different treatment options and, and one of those checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy drugs that Dr. Zolata just talked about back then was uh, was on clinical trial that, that I happened to um, be chosen for or qualify for. Um, and, and I've got to say, you know, seven, eight years later now, I, I, I am, uh, there's no evidence of disease. It took a year for that, the drugs to work. I'm still on that clinical trial and I benefited from, uh, from all that research. I consider myself hitting the jackpot. There is no better lottery to win. Uh, so bladdercancercanada.org, uh, is our, um, is our website and, and you've got all the links to the walk. Uh, to the, the different patient resource material, um, and there's a, a discussion forum on there as well. So it's it's full of a lot of very informative uh, uh, information on there. Tony Kornakia is Chair VP of Bladder Cancer Canada and a bladder cancer survivor as well. Dr. Alex Lada is the Director of Uro-Oncology at Mount Sinai Hospital, a professor in the Department of Urology Surgery at the University of Toronto, and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Emmanuel in Brampton phoned about issues affecting older voters ahead of the provincial election. You know, Doug Ford, he got a good attention too, okay? And he did a lot of good things. But uh, the problem is now we got a lot of seniors and uh, and to spend ten billion dollars on a highway, he could wait. He could wait for that, and uh, and the other guy wants more hospitals. That's what we need. I'm a senior, and uh, you know, like, and he do do nothing for for the seniors this time. Nothing. Uh, you know, like, uh, can he wait to spend, to don't spend the $10 billion on the highway? Skip in Toronto is a fan of Doug Ford's, and he called in to tell us why. I like Ford because I know his brother, and he seems to be, I've done a good job so far. Because as a premier, when I call him or he calls me or whatever, he always have a good response. And I will hope that he get back in there. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Susan in St. Catharines, who phoned to offer her perspective on the provincial election. My concern has been that we need a premier in for all of Ontario, not just for Toronto. Everything Mr. Ford has done benefits people in Toronto. We saw that with covid and um, we couldn't get any of our vaccinations till all of Toronto was, and yet people from Toronto were coming here, and we weren't protected. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.